Hey there, dear listeners, it's Marie. Just some fun housekeeping before we get started. First of all, thank you for all the feedback about the show. I love hearing from everybody, and I'm in the process of getting the website up and running. It'll have all the show notes with their sources used to tell the story, probably some merch, and how to get in contact. Whatever fun and interesting goodies I can cook up for y'all. I might even sing. No, I'm kidding. I won't. Second, let's take a second and talk about the recent events that are happening in China, in the southern city of Guangzhou. The Guardian reports, U.S. State Department officials on Wednesday said it had sent a number of individuals from its consulate in Guangzhou back to the U.S. for further evaluation and comprehensive assessment of their symptoms. Last month, a consulate worker in Guangzhou was found to have suffered a mild traumatic brain injury after reporting abnormal sensations of sound and pressure from late 2017 through to April 2018. Business Insider reports, on May 23rd, the U.S. State Department announced that one embassy worker in Guangzhou experienced subtle and vague but abnormal sensations of sound and pressure before being diagnosed with symptoms similar to those found in the diplomatic personnel that were in Cuba, including mild traumatic brain injury. At least two more Americans in Guangzhou have experienced similar phenomenon and have also fallen ill. One of those embassies workers told the Times that he and his wife had heard mysterious sounds and experienced strange headaches and sleeplessness while in their apartment. The New York Times reports, State Department evacuated at least two more Americans from China on Wednesday. The Americans who were evacuated worked at the American consulate in the southern city of Guangzhou, and their colleagues and family members are being tested by State Department medical team, the official said. It is unclear how many of them are exhibiting symptoms, but a State Department spokeswoman said Wednesday evening that a number of individuals have been sent to the United States for further testing. For months, American officials have been worried that their diplomats have been subjected to targeted attacks involving odd sounds, leaving symptoms similar to those following concussion or minor traumatic brain injury, the State Department says. CNN follows up with U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says Wednesday that an incident involving a United States government employee stationed in China reported abnormal sensations of sound and pressure, suggesting mild brain injury by medical indications that are very similar and entirely consistent to those experienced by the American diplomats positioned in Havana. Okay, so on the first pass, these events in China sound like whatever we think happened in Havana, Cuba in 2016. But as soon as I say the phrase, whatever we think happened, that should give anyone pause. Because we don't really know what happened in Havana. Not really. Not to any certainty. We know some details, uh, and we know a little bit more about the events as they were reported. Now, what I do think is interesting about this strange story that originated in Havana, Cuba, and it's resurfacing almost verbatim two years later in China. So maybe the question isn't, is it the same sonic attack that happened in Cuba? But why is it so important for us to believe that it is? And why now? 
It'll be very interesting to see what happens next. And I'll be releasing a bonus pod on the subject soon. So more details to follow there. And finally, a special thanks to Mr. Tom Foley for checking me on comparing the size of Cuba to California. And he's absolutely correct. California is roughly four times bigger than this island that our story is about. So I will endeavor to get things right, but I will inevitably get things wrong. So please bear with me, dear listeners. I am sure that the head of our fact department and the newest, albeit honorary member to the Whatever Remains podcast team, Tom Foley, would concur. Answering every question is not nearly as important as questioning every answer. So thank you again to each of you. And now, for your listening pleasure, here's episode three of Sonic Attack, the overt intelligent gatherers of Havana Bay. Thank you, and keep listening. 2016. It is fall in Havana, Cuba, and a young American man lounges comfortably in the back porch of his home in an upscale suburb in western Havana. Feeling good about this new assignment, he marvels at how far the two countries have come. If he was back home on the East Coast, there'd be no way he'd be sitting outside. But here, the hot day has cooled into a clear evening, and there's a breeze. He's close enough to the beach that he can smell the ocean. The home he is staying in is really a beautiful old Spanish-style neocolonial mansion, from the pre-revolutionary days. With intricate tiled floors, white panel walls, and ceilings that are over nine feet tall. Almost every room has large windows with ornate wrought iron latticework, and they are all flung open so the breeze can travel the entire length of the long hallways. Security is never far from the young man's mind, but it is so beautiful here. The covered back porch stretches into a closed backyard that's covered in the tropical fauna of Havana. The mansion, the porch, everything feels like you're living outside. This wealthy neighborhood is well guarded. There's hardly any foot traffic from tourists. So instead of hearing sounds from a busy city, the man closes his eyes and instead hears the sounds of nature, the faint waves from the ocean, the breeze blowing through the halls and out through the trees, and the loud, happy din of crickets. Less than a month later, the same man walks into the medical clinic located in the American embassy where he works with a serious complaint. This normally healthy young man suddenly developed headaches, hearing problems, and a sharp, piercing pain in one ear. This American with the sudden health issues, the same one who just a month earlier was enjoying the cool Havana night, is special. This unnamed American perhaps isn't a diplomat or an embassy worker, but instead was with the CIA, stationed in Havana, and he is patient zero in the Cuban sonic attacks. I'm your host, Marie Mayhew. Thank you for listening to the Whatever Remains podcast. This episode, the overt information gatherers of Havana Bay.
A mere eight months before the first reported and confirmed attack, the old adversaries of Cuba and America appeared to be on a very different path. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much. Please. Thank you very much. Uh, to President Castro, the people of Cuba, thank you so much for the warm welcome that I have received, that my family have received, and that our delegation has received. It is an extraordinary honor to be here today. In March 22, 2016, then-American President Barack Obama delivered a speech from a colonial-style theater in historic Old Havana. The speech was televised to the 11 million people of Cuba and was even spoken somewhat in Spanish. It was the defining moment of a three-day presidential visit packed with extraordinary firsts, an American president speaking directly to the Cuban people in Cuba, broadcast live as Cuba's own president looked on. In this speech, Obama would discuss many things, Cuban culture, religious beliefs, he would even touch on baseball. But the one thing that President Obama seemed intent on conveying was that things were going to be different. America and Cuba would begin more direct interactions and in many ways finally begin to normalize their relations. There would be no more political or politicized action that would jeopardize this progress. Our countries would start to really try to trust one another. Like so many people in both of our countries, my lifetime has spanned a time of isolation between us. The Cuban Revolution took place the same year that my father came to the United States from Kenya. The Bay of Pigs took place the year that I was born. The next year, the entire world held its breath watching our two countries as humanity came as close as we ever have to the horror of nuclear war. As the decades rolled by, our government settled into a seemingly endless confrontation, fighting battles through proxies. In a world that remade itself time and again, one constant was the conflict between the United States and Cuba. I have come here to bury the last remnant of the Cold War in the Americas. I have come here to extend the hand of friendship to the Cuban people. We cannot and should not ignore the very real differences that we have about how we organize our governments, our economies, and our societies. Cuba has a one-party system. The United States is a multi-party democracy. Cuba has a socialist economic model. The United States is an open market. Cuba has emphasized the role and rights of the state. The United States is founded upon the rights of the individual. Despite these differences, on December 17, 2014, 
President Castro and I announced that the United States and Cuba would begin a process to normalize relations between our countries. Since then, we've established diplomatic relations and opened embassies. We've begun initiatives to cooperate on health and agriculture, education and law enforcement. We've reached agreements to restore direct flights and mail service. We've expanded commercial ties and increased the capacity of Americans to travel and do business in Cuba. And these changes have been welcomed, even though there are still opponents to these policies. Still, many people on both sides of this debate have asked, why now? Why now? And while it may seem like a bureaucratic point among the more compelling language in Obama's speech, the reestablishment of diplomatic relations, especially the reopening of the embassy, represents a huge foundation of trust. As President of the United States, I've called on our Congress to lift the embargo. It is an outdated burden on the Cuban people. It's a burden on the Americans who want to work and do business or invest here in Cuba. And over time, the youth will lose hope. I know these issues are sensitive, especially coming from an American president. Before 1959, some Americans saw Cuba as something to exploit ignored poverty, enabled corruption. And since 1959, we've been shadow boxers in this battle of geopolitics and personalities. I know the history, but I refuse to be trapped by it. Here, there's a fairly transparent acknowledgement that events like the Bay of Pigs, Operation Mongoose, and the Cuban Missile Crisis what we as a nation have been shadowboxing over, these events were born from political necessity and not necessarily for the global well-being. And now, America and Cuba would move forward with their fundamental differences, but together, out from under this dark shadow of history. But as you know, dear listeners, that shadow, it has a long reach. An American embassy in a foreign country is a hugely important thing, even now in the largely digital age where proximity doesn't really matter. While they have real effects and practical purposes, an embassy is largely symbolic. It's more than just a piece of American homeland transported to foreign soil and staffed with Americans. It's the embodiment of the American ideals and beliefs, all in one building. This sounds like a relatively straightforward task, assisting American citizens who travel to or live in this host country, interact with representatives of the host government, local businesses, the media, and educational institutions. People who work in embassies are constantly having to read the country they are stationed in. What is the political climate? How is the economy? 
the big things that could have an impact on the United States. They may even help train the host government's police and military to better support security in the country or sponsor educational, professional, and cultural exchanges with the United States. People who work in American embassies are what John Negroponte, the former director of national intelligence and deputy secretary of state, calls overt intelligence collectors. Negroponte says of his own time as an ambassador, When I was an ambassador to Mexico, I had a staff meeting every day because my embassy was so big. I had 35 different government agencies and departments that would just have representatives coming to my staff meetings every day, just to give you an idea of the complexity of conducting foreign relations. Maybe the posts were CIA, maybe doing something. There may be posts where intelligent gathering and analysis, the so-called listing posts, may be more important than others, for example, during the Cold War. Basically, the operational mechanics of an embassy can be complex and require many people. Even the ambassador themselves may not have full purview over who everyone is or what their role is. Negroponte concedes this point. While diplomats are the overt intelligence collectors, the work of the CIA does, or the end product of diplomatic reporting and clandestine intelligence gathering, can sometimes be the same thing. Robert Baer, a former CIA field officer in the Middle East, says, In the American diplomatic service, the line between diplomats and the CIA may be clear, but it's also more often than not crossed. There is a reason that the CIA is stationed usually next door to the political sector in our embassies, Bayer says. You can always find diplomats who are happy to cooperate with the CIA. There are ambassadors who love that stuff. In the American system, it sloshes over from side to side. If an American embassy represents America in foreign countries, it stands to reason that an attack on an embassy or on an employee is paramount to an attack occurring on American soil. That act of aggression is perceived of having the same repercussions as if an American city was attacked. I emphasize this because it's easy to minimize events that don't occur in our own backyard. But when an American embassy is struck, the repercussions are serious. Take, for example, the U.S. Embassy in Iran, 1979. Iranian students stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took all 63 Americans hostage. After 444 tense days, during which a rescue attempt by force failed, the Americans were freed. Or the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, 1983. Islamic radicals bombed the U.S. Embassy and killed 63 people, including 17 Americans. It was one of the first times that a suicide car bomb was used on an American target. The embassy was attacked again the very next year when a van driven by a suicide bomber killed 23. Or perhaps most recently, the U.S. mission in Benghazi, Libya, 2012. The U.S. mission in Benghazi, Libya is attacked and burnt, mortar and rocket fire against the diplomatic annex in the city. U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens and three other United States nationals are killed in the attack. More than 30 Americans are evacuated. So regardless of your political beliefs, these examples show the indelible mark left in American culture when violence happens in an American embassy. It's serious. So when President Obama announced we would be reopening our embassy in Havana and fully staffing it with foreign affairs specialists after decades of absence, that is very significant. 
Now that relations between Cuba and the United States were normalizing, where would the American diplomats finally return to after 50 years? The United States diplomatic presence in Cuba is housed in a severe early 1950s office building, perched on the shoreline over Havana Bay. Walled off from the city and pulled back from the street, the building has the uneasy presence of a haunted castle, shunned and maligned by its neighbors, but subjected to unending scrutiny of suspicious eyes and intrigued gossips of the locals. Designed by Wallace Harrison and Max Abramovitz, the American embassy in Havana itself was completed in 1953. The architects, Harrison and Abramovitz, played a major role in designing the Lincoln Center and the United Nations headquarters in New York. Six stories of concrete and glass. It looked like an office building, a giant rectangle looming over the shoreline of the Havana Bay. In its day, the building did gather accolades. Clad in imported travertine panels, the embassy's clean lines and simple rectangular geometry epitomized both the industrial aesthetic of international styled modernism and the seemingly inescapable influence of the encroaching American culture. Not only did its appearance of the building exude an imperialist presence, but so too did its conception and construction. The calculated decision to build the embassy in this particular style had important cultural meaning, especially in the context of the broader global political climate with Cuba. Modernism deliberately represented the political values that the United States hoped would inspire the world to follow in its lead, the promise of prosperity, and the opportunity through the mechanics of technology and industrialization. While seemingly optimistic, this modernist style had a slightly less attractive reality. In order to work off the leftover debt from the Second World War, several European countries contributed to the financing of the embassy through the provision of raw materials and direct monetary support. So that travertine facade, for example, was provided by the Italian government, while other materials were exported from France, Belgium, and England in order to reduce those countries' debt burden. After relations between the two countries fell apart when Castro came to power, America vacated its embassy, and the building was not used by American personnel until the opening of the interest sections in September 1, 1977. The U.S. government struggled to keep the four embassy in decent repair. William Minor former Director of Design and Engineering for the State Department's Bureau of Overseas Building Operations, oversaw a renovation that in 1997 involved the replacement of the travertine facade with granite and a complete mechanical upgrade, and also the replacement of the building's windows that lined the harbor. Miner said that he expected the State Department would, at some point, send a design team down to survey the building and do remedial work to upgrade the security requirements, since these are all now very different from when the building was first built. A place like Havana, he said, will have special criteria. After the 2012 terrorist attack on the U.S. Embassy in Libya, political tensions magnified over the physical safety of American diplomats. 
The government organization that supervises the design and construction of U.S. facilities abroad, the Bureau of Overseas Building Operations, was tasked with pushing a new program that would enhance the appearance of overseas facilities, but would also provide essential security and safety for its U.S. personnel. The political pressures surrounding the 2012 Benghazi attacks was so heated and so divisive that the members of this panel were met with roadblocks at every stage of their approval process. Some members of Congress believe that this new plan would likely increase the risk for overseas attacks on U.S. personnel. Others voiced that fewer embassies would be built and the design and construction of facilities would take longer. But the most prevalent concern was about cost. Investigators in the U.S. Congress that reviewed the program focused on costs and safety issues. They especially made an example of the new embassy in construction, the glass-cubed $1 billion showplace embassy being built in London. This resulted in especially one point worthy of note when it comes into the context of Havana. One, money and time would be allocated to embassies with a recognized need for more focus on higher threat posts. Obama's Cuban thaw reopened the U.S. Embassy, but Cuba, its poverty, stagnant infrastructure, aging regime, would not be the same threat as it was in the 1950s. The State Department may have decided not to overhaul the Cuban Embassy because, simply put, maybe it just wasn't worth it. When Miner said that he expected that the State Department would do remedial work to upgrade security requirements, that seems to be the case. The organization had just spent $1 billion on a glass box in London, and now the majority of Congress and Senate was questioning just how safe that glass box truly was. The last thing that anyone would want to do is pour more money and time into Cuba, a country that basically had lied dormant for the last 50 years. So, while the Obama administration had been trying to work out the differences with Cuba, for the past years, tensions are high because there's so much at stake for both governments and the people of Cuba. Cuba and the United States officially resumed full diplomatic relations at midnight on July 20th, 2015, and U.S. reopened its embassy in Havana with securities measures updated, but to what extent, it's not clear. We then send in 51 American embassy employees, which may have ranged from diplomat or overt intelligence collectors to operatives for the CIA or clandestine intelligence gatherers. These 51 employees bring their family, and the majority of them take up the residency in an affluent western suburb in Cuba or at hotels, and the United States begins the long process of rebuilding the relationship. Then, December 2016, the American diplomat visits the small medical center in the embassy and reports the first known symptoms, headaches, hearing problems, sharp pain in one ear. It is reported that these symptoms manifest themselves following a strange experience in which something like a beam of sound has seemingly been directed at his home. His home, again being the neo-colonial residencies, in the western suburb of Havana. These elegant old mansions and tropical suburban homes are the enclave favored by senior foreign diplomats and business executives. 
and there's relatively little car pedestrian traffic, and there's a considerable presence of private security guards as well as the Cuban police. Who was this first victim, and what was the nature of the work that he was performing in Havana is unknown. While it is estimated that he may have been exposed to this beam of sound, starting in as early as November, the frequency and duration of the noise is not known. What this person's medical history was, or health, prior to being stationed in Havana is not known. The surprising lack of proof and factual details repeat itself within the next year, as up to 24 diplomats fall sick. Where did the attacks take place? Did everyone hear the same thing? Who are these people? Did everyone have the same or similar symptoms? What did the doctors think it was? Was there a weapon? Media and some government disclosures are all we have to piece together this mystery. Don't worry, dear listeners. We'll sift through all these bits and pieces starting right after the patient zero walked into the embassy clinic. But before we dig in on all these puzzle pieces, let's see what light science can shine on all of this. Let's build one. Let's actually build a sonic weapon. That's on the next episode of Whatever Remains podcast. I'm your host, Marie Mayhew. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Whatever Remains podcast. I'll be back in two weeks with our next episode where I build my very own sonic weapon. That is if I don't blow myself up in the meantime. But hey, dear listeners, what do you think a sonic weapon looks like? We want to know. Email a short description or even a brief audio file to me, and I'll use it in our next episode and send you a very special, limited edition Sonic Attack sticker, Cuban edition. Not China yet. Those are, those are still in the works. You can email me at marie at whateverremainspodcast.com. You can also find our website at whateverremainspodcast.com or on Twitter at whateverremainspodcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite shows and be kind and leave a lovely five-star rating if you are so inclined. It helps others find us. Um, our sound editing by Michael Buchanan. Our fabulous theme is by Group Rhoda. The Whatever Remains logo is by the very talented Desdemona. This has been a Dammy Chippet Productions. Keep listening, won't you?